One of the greatest dangers for any organization, any, even the church, is for it to lose sight of its mission. That this lost focus will be seen in any number of ways. The lost focus will be seen when churches continue to do what they've always done, regardless of whether it's effective anymore, simply because they've always done it. A loss of focus will be seen when a church refuses to try anything new because we've never done it that way before. Loss of focus is seen when a church assigns something of primary importance when it's really only of secondary importance. A loss of focus is seen when a church only does what is comfortable instead of what is commanded. That's why it's important for the church to continually come back to, to the question, what is the church's mission? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 is where we're going to start. That's page 760 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Matthew 28 and 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The title of the message this morning is The Mission of the Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your greatness and your goodness. We thank you for your love and your kindness. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to gather to study your word, to see what you have for us today. As we gather here in your name and as we look at your word, Father, let your spirit center our hearts and minds upon you. Help us to lay aside the cares of this life. Help us not to be distracted by anything else that's going on right now. But just, Lord, in this time to listen to you, to look at your word, to let it sink deep into our hearts and bring the change that needs to be there. Help us as a church, Lord, to be busy about the mission that you have given your church. Help us not to get caught up in things, Lord, that are not of primary importance, but, Lord, to focus on the things you want us to focus on, to do the things that you want us to do. Let us be a church, Lord, that is a beacon of hope in our community, that, Lord, the light of the gospel would shine out from this place. Souls would be saved. Lives would be changed. Work today in our midst and just bring change into our lives. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Draw us back to you if we need to uh, be brought back. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this passage is a familiar passage. It's what's commonly called the Great Commission. And, and in this passage, we do find the, the one mission of the church. The Great Commission is the mission of the church. This was what the mission of the early church was from the book, from the time Jesus gave this throughout the book of Acts. It is the same mission that the church has today. The Great Commission being the mission of the church, it has not changed from the day that Jesus spoke these words until now. And if the world goes on for another thousand years, it will still not change. Uh, this is the one great mission that Jesus has given to his church. Fulfilling the Great Commission, it is what the early church did and what the book of Acts says enabled them to turn the world upside down. Uh, and this is what, as a church today, this is what we are to be doing in the world around us. We are to be doing all that we can to fulfill the Great Commission. This passage, it shows us three aspects of living out the Great Commission so that we can fulfill it as the mission of the church. The first is to believe the authority of Jesus. Believe in the authority of of Jesus. Now, an important part of the Great Commission as the mission of the church, it's often overlooked, is verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The basis of the Great Commission as the mission of the church is that Jesus has complete authority in heaven and on earth. 
Now, the word authority refers to the right to do something. The authority that Jesus has, it extends to everything in heaven and on earth. Because of time, we're only going to focus on the on earth aspect of Jesus' authority. And even then, only two small parts of it. But these two small parts of Jesus having all authority on earth are an important aspect of us being able to fulfill the mission of making disciples of all nations. These are things that as believers in Jesus Christ, as his disciples, we must believe this. We must submit to it. And then we must live it out to the very best of our abilities. So the first part is that Jesus has the authority to command. But as the risen Savior, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus has all authority on earth to determine what the church is supposed to do while it is here on the earth. But Jesus has determined in his authority that the church is to fulfill the Great Commission as their primary mission. At the same time, Jesus has the authority to command his disciples to fulfill the Great Commission and expect that they would rearrange their lives in such a way that they would begin to live out this Great Commission in their lives. Jesus has commanded those of us who are a part of his church that we are to labor and strive to fulfill the mission of making disciples of all nations. But the authority of Jesus, it ensures that he has the right to make this command, the authority of Jesus ensures that he has the right to expect that we will do these things. Jesus has commanded you and I, as his disciples, to make disciples of all nations. The question is, do we believe that Jesus has the authority to do this? Will we live in light of Jesus' authority and do this? Let me read a quote that I read in my study this week that I thought was challenging says the reality is that many modern U.S. evangelicals will appear bold when talking about standing up for Christ. But they cower when confronted with a costly stand for him. The unspoken view in much of the church is that I am more willing to send a check to the mission field, but I am not willing to let Jesus send me. This is tragic and a denial of the faith. Many are those who are content to raise their hands during worship or to get out their notepad for the sermon, but are not willing to obey the commands of Christ. Why are they comfortable this way? The answer is simple. This is the acceptable standard for most of the modern church. It is acceptable to state your love for Jesus, sing a praise song, pay a tithe, give a reverential nod to his commands, yet all the while neglect to obey them. This may be acceptable for the church today, but it is not the Christianity Jesus sets forth when he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. As we look at the Great Commission, I can't see anything that would make this command optional to disciples of Jesus Christ. The command to make disciples of all nations is every bit as authoritative as the command not to commit adultery or not to murder. If we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, then we have to accept and embrace his authority to command us to go and make disciples of all nations. If we are going to fulfill the mission of the church, then we as individuals must submit to his authority, embrace this command as ours and do what we can to make disciples of all nations. But Jesus not only has authority to command, Jesus has authority to call. Part of Jesus having all authority on earth 
is that Jesus has authority over unbelievers as well as believers. The authority of Jesus extends to those to whom he sends us with the gospel. And here's how this helps us as we seek to make disciples of all nations. Right? Paul, in these verses, starts off by saying, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a great truth. That's a hopeful truth. But then he goes on and begins to ask a series of questions. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? Everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved, but... How are they going to call on Jesus if they don't believe on Jesus? Well, they won't. But he goes on. And how shall they believe in Jesus if they've not heard about Jesus? Right. So everybody who believes in Jesus and calls on Jesus will be saved by Jesus. But in order to believe in Jesus, they have to be told about Jesus. No one will ever believe on Jesus without hearing about Jesus. And then how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good tidings, glad tidings of good things. But no one can believe on Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus. No one will hear about Jesus unless someone tells them. That's the train of thought that Paul gives in this passage. And the way the authority of Jesus is seen in this is that he calls those that we share the gospel with. He calls them to salvation. You know, one of the truths of Scripture is that no one ever just determines to come to Jesus. Right? As the gospel is shared with them, they are called to salvation. The Bible speaks of this in different ways. In 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about God calling light into the darkness. In John chapter 6, Jesus talks about no one coming to him unless the Father draws them. In Ephesians 1, it talks about the Holy Spirit reaching out and bringing people to Jesus. And all of this is the same sort of thing. The idea is, as we share the gospel with people, God works through that and he begins to call people to Jesus. He begins to call them to turn to him, to come to him and to be saved. Now, not everyone we share the gospel with is going to believe on Jesus. That's just the unfortunate truth. But some will. As you and I, as we verbalize the gospel, as we call people to believe in Jesus, as we talk to them about who he is and what he's done, Jesus works through that. He begins to to use our efforts and our words, and he makes them aware of the fact that he is real, that he is alive and that he is calling them to salvation. Now, at that point, they do have a choice to make. They will choose either to believe in Jesus or to reject Jesus. And those who believe in Jesus, they will call upon Jesus and they will then be saved by Jesus. Right? And Jesus has the authority to call unbelievers to repent and believe. He has all authority to, go, to do that and he does it only as you and I share the gospel. Now, we can question about why that's God's plan. Because God could have done it any number of ways. But God's plan is that believers in Jesus Christ would share the gospel with other people. And as we shared the gospel with other people, Jesus would then call them to salvation. And they would make a choice about whether or not they would answer that call and come to Jesus. Jesus has the power and the authority to call unbelievers to salvation. And he will save all those Who come to him. The Great Commission, it is the one and only primary mission of the church. But in order to fulfill this mission, you and I, as individual disciples, we have to believe in the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Believe that he has the authority to command us to do things we may not want to do. We have to believe he has the authority to call unbelievers to salvation and to save them when they turn to him. We must live in light of the authority of Jesus. So first, we believe in the authority of Jesus. But secondly, we obey the commands of Jesus. Now, the Great Commission has one primary command with three supporting commands. The primary command explains the main goal. What what is the objective of the Great Commission? And the others explain how we go about fulfilling this Great Commission. Now, for most of my life, what I've always heard is that the primary command of the Great Commission is, is go. Right? You go and knock doors. You go pass out tracts. You, you go. And then everything else is sort of incidental. But when you study the passage, that's not the, the thrust that Jesus is giving. The primary command is actually to make disciples. Right? And that's important because the goal... Of the mission of the church, it's not to go and get people to pray a prayer. Uh, it, it's not to get people to walk down Romans Road. It's not to get them to accept four spiritual laws. It begins there, but that's not the end of it. The end goal is not just to make converts, but to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But all that we want to do in fulfilling the Great Commission, is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. It's not enough to convince them to pray a prayer. It's not enough to convince them to to just say the right words. What we're trying to do is help them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ so they can be fully devoted followers in their lives. That's the primary command, make disciples. The, The supporting commands are to go to baptize and to teach. So how do we how do we live out that one main command of make disciples and go baptize and teach? Well, first, look for opportunities to make disciples. But while go is not the primary command, it is a part of the message. And, and there are two sides to what it means to go and make disciples. One is just to go, right? To be very intentional about making disciples, to to uh, to to find people that we can invest in, to maybe go knock a door, maybe hand out a tract, to do something that we can to say, I I want that person right there to know Jesus and live for Jesus. And so I'm going to focus effort on leading them to Jesus and then helping them become a disciple of Jesus. We are to be very intentional about it. But the other side of the go is more of a I don't know if passive is the right word, but it's not quite as active. Some of the books I've read suggest that go and make disciples could also be translated as, as you're going, make disciples. So not so much just, okay, I'm going to go and knock that door. I'm going to go and try to reach out to Scott, but I'm going to go through my life. And as I go through my life, I'm going to be aware of the fact that spiritual conversations will happen. I'm going to be aware of the fact I'm going to encounter people that need Jesus in their life. And I'm going to be aware of that. And I'm going to look for opportunities to begin to share Jesus with them. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities when I see them. And if I can lead them to a saving faith in Jesus when they pray the prayer, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to continue trying to invest in their life so they can become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. When you read through the book of Acts, that's kind of what you see. You know, the church at Acts, they never meet on a Thursday night or a Saturday morning and have outreach. Instead, typically, they just sort of go through their life. 
And as they go through their life, opportunities to share Jesus with someone comes up. They're going to the temple to pray. And as they're going to the temple to pray, they see a lame man there having the faith to be healed. So they take advantage of that opportunity. Going down to pray at the river. And while they go down to the river to pray, there's other people there who are also seeking the Lord. And they use that as an opportunity to begin to share Jesus with them. But over and over and over again in the book of Acts, you find the disciples of Jesus going through life. Doing what it is that they do when an opportunity arises. They see it. They take advantage of it and they begin to work through that to help the person become a disciple of Jesus. We see it in the life of Jesus as well. I mean, you think about the stuff Jesus did, his miracles and his teachings and so often the way he dealt with people. How many of those were just an intentional evangelistic outreach effort? Right. He said, "Okay, I'm going to stand here. Now, you guys go out and draw people in and I'm going to preach the gospel to them. It didn't happen very often. Instead, what happened was Jesus was tired and he sat down at a well to get a drink of water while his disciples went into town to get some food. And while he was there, a woman came up who who needed a savior. And he used that opportunity to begin to teach them. And other times he he went away with his disciples by themselves so they could rest and people followed them. Well, the people were there, so he took advantage of it and he told them. The kingdom told them about the kingdom of God. He he did miracles. He healed them and he multiplied the food over and over again. In the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We see. The disciples of Jesus and Jesus just living their life. And opportunities to have spiritual conversations come up and they take advantage of them. But that's that's kind of how we're supposed to be. Now, again, there are times where we take the initiative, we reach out, we focus and we try. But at the same time, more often than not, it's just a matter of being aware. I mean, think about all the stuff you're going to do this week. Go to work, go to hobbies. You're going to go out and about and see how many people, how many opportunities to talk to somebody about Jesus are going to come up this week. How many opportunities to pray with them, to pray for them, to explain the hope that you have within you, why you have peace, why you're not stressed over this or aggravated over that, why your family lives the way they live, why you do the things that you do. How many times this week are those sort of opportunities going to come up? If we're aware and we're thinking that way, probably many. So what we do is we live with an awareness these, com- these opportunities are going to come up. When they come up, we're going to take advantage of them and we're going to try to help people come to know Jesus and then begin to live for Jesus. So we look for opportunities to make disciples, but then we want to connect disciples to the church. But the other thing is to go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism... It's an outward testimony of an inward change. It is the the public way of saying that Jesus has saved us and we're now going to follow him with our lives. But the, the baptism in the Bible, it is a way that they identified with Jesus and with his church. But when you look at the day of Pentecost, they're gathered together praying, the Holy Spirit comes Peter stands up to preach at the end of the sermon. The people are cut to the heart, the Bible says. And they said, brethren, what must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Your sins will be forgiven. And they are baptized. And then what do they do? They joined 
but the church. You see that over and over in the book of Acts. When there are significant events where they preach and thousands are saved, those thousand people always do the same two things. They are baptized, and then it says that they join with the church. Disciples are not only supposed to believe, but also to belong. When someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the things they desperately need is to connect with disciples of Jesus. Right, An immature believer needs to connect with a more mature believer. You know, The Bible describes a, a new believer as a babe in Christ. None of us would take a baby and put it out in the parking lot and expect it to live and to thrive and to do everything needed to be done to, to be healthy and growing. And yet when we take a new believer and we take them and we lead them to pray a prayer and then we don't connect them to the church, that's essentially what we're doing. We're leaving a a newborn babe in Christ out in the wild. And it's no wonder that so many of them make professions of faith and yet never actually live for Jesus in any way that is noticeable in their lives. They, They have never been connected to other believers. They've never seen what a mature disciple is like. They they've never been taught. They've never grown in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we want a new believer to have a thriving relationship with Jesus, to to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, then we have to not only lead them to pray a prayer, we need to connect them to the church. When we are making disciples, we're fulfilling this mission. We're not only focused on making converts, that's where it starts. But then we begin to focus on their spiritual development. That they would be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And, and the very first aspect of that, it is a connection to a local church. I know I, I say this a lot, but the local church is supremely important for the mission of Christ, and for the life of the disciple of Christ. If we want someone who is newly believing in Jesus to truly live for Jesus, we have to connect them to the church. And then finally, develop deep disciples. Right. So to obey the command of Jesus, you look for opportunities, you connect disciples to the church and then you develop deep disciples. In verse 20, Jesus says that we're to teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you. The last supporting command, it is the command to teach the word of God. One of the things a new disciple needs is to be taught what scripture says. The life of a disciple of Jesus is not natural. What I mean by that, someone is not going to believe in Jesus, pray a prayer, believe in Jesus, and then naturally fall into a life of generosity, fall into a life of turning the other cheek. Fall into a life of loving your enemies and doing good to those that hate you. The life of a disciple of Jesus is contrary to nature. It's contrary to culture. And it's contrary to really the typical way that we want to be. So how does someone who believes in Jesus, they begin to live like Jesus? They need someone to teach them what Jesus has said. To show them what Jesus has done. Now, there are a lot of good books. I have a lot to say about living for Jesus. But in the end, everything always has to come back to Scripture. This is the primary book that they should be taught from. 
If a person is going to follow Jesus with the goal of being like Jesus, they're going to have to know what Jesus said and what Jesus did and what Jesus commanded. Right? Because Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Right? So the purpose of teaching isn't just to fill someone's head with knowledge. It's to equip them to live out what Jesus has said that we're supposed to be and we're supposed to do. One of the great mistakes of, I would say, our generation of Christians is that we have equated spiritual maturity with knowledge. And so we have focused a great deal on making sure people have memory verses and they can quote the books of the Bible in order and they, they, they know the, the names of the tribes of Israel and things like that. So they have all of these, we might call them Bible trivia facts in their head. But how do you react to a stressor? How do you deal with a difficult person? How do you live a life of holiness? Well, they don't know. They haven't been taught how to live what the Bible said. They've just been taught how to memorize what the Bible said. The goal of teaching is never just to fill someone's head with knowledge. Knowledge, again, it has to start there. We have to know what it said. But then we've got to know, what do I do with it? How do I live that out? What does that mean to me on a day in and day out basis? How does that help me live for Jesus? How does that help me be like Jesus? So we teach them with the goal of them embracing the truth and beginning to live it out in their lives. Knowledge without obedience. That's how you make a carnal Christian. You know, Paul talks about carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians. They're the ones that, that stir up the strife in the church. They're the ones that argue over the color of the carpet. They're the ones, when, when you find a church that splits, and, and I'll say this, I've said it before. In my experience, I've never seen a church split over anything significant. I've never seen a church split over who Jesus was or what Jesus came to do. I've never seen a church split over the nature of salvation or the inspiration of Scripture. I have seen churches split over whether you should have pews or theater seats. I've seen churches split over what kind of piano you should have or how many musical instruments you should have in the church. I've seen churches split over that kind of stuff. And without fail, you will find those are carnal Christians. They know a lot. They can quote the Bible. They can give you things in, in alphabetical order. They can list it out, this, this, and that. But they don't live it out. They don't even know how to live it out. So if we just fill people's head with knowledge, but we don't teach them how to live it out, we are setting them up to be troublemakers, to be strife stirrers, and to be the people that rip apart the unity in any church they're a part of, whether it's ours or another. We want to develop deep disciples, teach them what the Word says, and how to live it out in their lives. The Great Commission, it is the mission of the church. In order to fulfill this mission, we have to obey the command of Jesus to make disciples. And then finally, we believe in the authority of Jesus. We obey the command of Jesus. And finally, we depend on the presence of Jesus. Jesus said at the end of verse 20, And lo, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. You know, Jesus knew the command he was giving them was big thing. It was big. It was challenging. And you think about the disciples. I mean, throughout the Gospels, this group of guys, they're, they're not especially clever. 
And they're not especially wise. And they're not especially bold. I mean, here this is just days probably before he would ascend into heaven. How long ago was it when they had all fled at his arrest? How many days before this was it that that Peter had denied he even knew Jesus? Right. So the guys he's given this command to. They're probably overwhelmed by it because thus far they haven't really done a whole lot of anything to demonstrate they're capable of making disciples of all nations. They haven't demonstrated that they have the ability to teach people to do all the things that he's commanded them because they haven't even done the things he's commanded them all the time. So how are they? How do they keep from being overwhelmed by this? Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? He he ends this challenging command with an encouraging truth. They weren't going to do it by themselves. They weren't alone. He was going with them. He wasn't going to watch from heaven and cheer them on. He would go with them as they sought to make disciples of all nations. It's the same for us today. The command to make disciples of all nations. It's just as overwhelming to us as it was to them. I don't know about you, but when I read the disciples weren't especially clever, I think, well, I can relate to that. I'm not especially clever. And when they weren't especially courageous, I'm aware that in my life I'm not always especially courageous. Right? I mean, and that quote I said earlier, it's really easy to, to talk boldly about taking a stand for Jesus, isn't it? Post on Facebook, well, they will never remember it. Boom! Right? Now, go out and stand for Jesus where people can see you. Ooh, ooh, that's a different story. So how are we going to do it? It's no less challenging to us than it was to them. And so the truth that Jesus is with us is just as important for us as it was to them. The fact that as we go out to make disciples, he goes with us to work in us and through us and for us. It should be an encouragement to us. It should be something that motivates us, that gives us courage to do this. Now, there's two truths about this that I think are important. Right. If we depend on the presence of Jesus, then we experience the presence of Jesus. And I want to explain this. Notice what Jesus says here. I am with you always. Or I'm sorry, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But the point that Jesus is making is as they go. He'll be with them. But the, the picture is that as we seek to do his will. Jesus goes with us. Right? But it's not so much a Jesus is with us as we don't do his will. It's not so much as I set and do nothing, Jesus is with me. But as I go, he goes with me. Now, the idea of Jesus going with us as we do his will is not unique to just the Great Commission. When God sent Joshua to take the promised land, he gave him a similar command. Have I not commanded you be strong and of a good courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever You go. Now, God would use Joshua to take the promised land. 
And God had promised that Joshua would have victory everywhere he went. But in order for Joshua to experience God's presence in this way, to experience God's power in this way, Joshua actually had to go. Joshua could not stay on this side of the of the river and experience the power and the presence of God giving him that victory. In order to conquer the promised land, Joshua actually had to go. But as he went, God would go with him. It's the same for us. I mean, we can't make disciples of all nations without going. We can't even make disciples of all nations just by coming to church. Because as we look around, we see the nations aren't coming in. But the nations are out there. So what has to happen is it's not we make we come in and we make disciples. But as we go out, we make disciples, all of us. And the promise is that as we go... Jesus goes with us, that Jesus is there in that time. And and what I believe from this is that there are experiences of Jesus's presence in our lives. We will never have so long as we are not engaged in the mission of making disciples. As we go, he goes with us. But as we stay and ignore, there are experiences of his presence and of his goodness and of his power we never have. And this isn't unique to this. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, obey my commandments. And if you obey my commandments, the Father and I will manifest ourselves, will reveal ourselves to you. Right? So there are experiences of knowing Jesus we never have. If we aren't doing what he wants us to do, which a part of that. It's going and making disciples of all nations. So as we go and we depend on the presence of Jesus, we experience the presence of Jesus, but we also experience the power of Jesus. Part of the promise of the presence of Jesus is his power to work in us and through us and for us. And we're familiar with Acts 1, 8 and the promise as we go to be a witness. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So one of the promises that we cling to when we seek to make disciples is that the Holy Spirit will come upon us in power and enable us to do what needs to be done. That's a promise. We talked about last week, the Holy Spirit will enable us to do anything that Jesus has commanded us to do. But something we have to understand is that a huge part of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer is equip us to serve. Right? The Holy Spirit, you read through the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and then they spoke and then they did this and then they did that. The Holy Spirit didn't come upon anybody to sit and do nothing. The Holy Spirit came upon them to go and to do the things that Jesus wanted them to do. Again, there are experiences of the Holy Spirit's work in us and through us and for us that we are going to miss out on if we are not actively working to make disciples. Now, the Holy Spirit wants to work in us. Jesus wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit's power. But there's an element in which we must be willing to go. We must be willing to speak. We must be willing to be his witnesses. 
Think of it like a car being filled with gas. Why do you fill a car with gas? So that you can drive it. If you're going to take a car and park it and never drive it again, how much gas do you put in? Do you fill the tank full or do you put just enough to get you to where you're going to drop it off and leave it? In a similar way, why would God fill us to the point that Jesus talks about rivers of living water flowing out of our hearts? Why would he fill us like that if we're not going to do what he wants us to do? Why would he fill us to overflowing with the Holy Spirit if we're going to park and not serve? The reality is he wouldn't. Very rarely, and I would say almost never, will you find a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled follower of Jesus who is not actively involved in serving Jesus. I mean, that is a... It's a necessary part of experiencing the power of Jesus is that we are willing to do whatever it is he wants us to do. And a part of what he wants us to do is to work and make disciples of all nations. If we desire to be filled with the spirit, then we must be prepared to serve. Now, as I said, Jesus wasn't just sending the disciples out to lead people to pray a prayer. In a lot of ways, I think you could say he was sending them out to change the world. And that can sound like an exaggeration, like a really big high type of thing. But look at what he actually says in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, all the nations. Up until earlier this year, I had never read it that way. What I had always read, even though that's what it says, is go, therefore, and make disciples from all the nations, which is still pretty amazing. But the Great Commission isn't to make disciples from all the nations, but to make disciples of all the nations. See, the work, it goes on until everyone is a fully devoted follower Of Jesus. The Great Commission was given to change the world. I mean, Jesus is sending out this group of guys at this point who aren't especially clever and they aren't especially courageous and and they aren't especially anything. And yet he's telling them to go into all the world. And make disciples of pretty much everyone you come into contact with. Now, not only does he charge them to do this, he convinces them that it's possible. Because Acts 2, when we get to Acts 2, they're sitting around waiting for the promise of the Father. The power that's supposed to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they go. And they go into all the world. And they do everything they can to make disciples of all the nations. They go out to try to change the world. And in, and in, in a lot of ways, they do. Right? In, in one place in Acts, it says that they had turned the world upside down. Think about that. They had turned the world upside down. They, they did change the world because Jesus is telling, at this point, 11 guys... But this isn't even the day of Pentecost with 120. This is the disciples, the 11 that are left. 
Go and make disciples of all the nations. Then there's 120 gathered on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And here we are today in Guymon, Oklahoma, talking about the stuff Jesus said to do. Because we have been reached by people making disciples. We have been reached with the gospel. The world is different because the church existed. The world is different because this small band of men, they believed that what Jesus said could actually be done. They believed that it was for them. And so they went out and they arranged their lives in such a way that they could do all that they could to make disciples of all the nations. The world is different today because they existed and because they lived out what Jesus said to do. I wonder today, do we understand, do we really understand that the mission of making disciples of all nations, it's ours. Not, not ours like a church, but ours as individuals. Right? Because there is no nebulous entity called the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church that does anything. There's us. We are the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. If we all left, there would be no church. Whatever the church is or whatever the church does, it's us. We are what the church is. We are what the church does. The mission, our mission as individuals is to make disciples. Do we believe that if we were to fulfill the Great Commission, that we would make the world a better place? Do we believe this group of people in here today Living out the command of Jesus, empowered by the spirit of Jesus, could change our community, change our state, could change our country, could change our world. And and if we don't. Why? Why don't we? Because. The church of Scripture did. And they weren't any better equipped than we were. They're not. They're probably, by and large, they're not as knowledgeable as we are. Most of us have more Bible knowledge than all 120 who were there on the day of Pentecost combined. Most of us have more access to the Scripture than anyone who lived in the Bible times ever. All that's missing is our belief that it matters. And our confidence, the power of God is sufficient to make us able to do it. If we believe scripture, we have to conclude that there is no organization in the world that can do what the church can do in changing the world. As we move out with the message of Jesus, seeking to fulfill the mission of Jesus, we will be empowered by Jesus and we will change the world. That's what the church is meant to do. It's what the church is meant to be. It's what we as individuals are meant to do. Let's stand.